0: Well, we're looking at Matthew 28. It's in your pew Bibles. Uh, Grab one of those and follow along. Uh, Reality TV shows. They seem to be everywhere, don't they, on on TV? In general, I'm not interested, Uh, but there is one type of episode that I I do particularly like. Uh, When shows like The Biggest Loser have a makeover episode, do you know the types of one I'm thinking of? Uh, The contestants they get a makeover, they put on their goal outfits, that outfit they wanted to be able to fit into again. And they're finally revealed to the audience, to their friends and family. And I love the looks on the faces of the audience when the, the brand-new Slim contestant walks past the huge poster of the old overweight contestant. And their jaws drop and their eyes open wide and they almost can't believe what they're looking at. They look again to check it's the same person. And then when it finally sinks in that it is, well, at least on the inside, they applaud and start cheering wildly. And they can't wait to share the news of what they've witnessed. And I wonder if that sort of series of reactions were what the two Marys went through when they got to that tomb on that first Easter morning. They'd gone at dawn, Verse 1, there's barely a soul about, It's quiet and calm. No one to disturb their grieving. They go expecting one thing, but they'll experience something completely different. As they approach the tomb, their eyes widen, their jaws drop. Things are not the way we remembered them Friday evening. Imagine the scene. At some point during the night, verse 2, there'd been another earthquake And an angel had come and just sort of rolled the stone away and was sitting on it, maybe waiting for these very eyewitnesses to turn up. Verse 3 tells us his appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. Meanwhile, the big, brave guards are lying about, babbling and shivering like idiots. The women look twice, they rub their eyes, Perhaps there's stunned silence and confusion and and maybe fear, if the angel's words are anything to go by. Verse 5, don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. They'd gone expecting mourning and solitude, tears and grief, but instead they're confronted with this unbelievable news, Jesus isn't there anymore. But more than that, he's not even dead anymore there's disbelief. After all, they'd seen all the events of the previous couple of days. The one they'd loved, the one they'd followed from Galilee, the one they'd witnessed lifeless, broken, bruised, bleeding, and then taken down and wrapped up, placed in a a cave tomb, sealed behind a stone door. They'd seen it all. They'd been right there. I think sometimes we forget the incredible news of that first Easter must have been just as mind-blowing for Jesus' followers as it was for everyone else. Although they should have, they didn't seem to be expecting it either. They should have. Jesus had warned them. The angel reminds them that Jesus had warned them. He's risen just as he said. Now even the Jewish leaders had picked up on that. That 's why they wanted a guard to seal the tomb in the first place, in case the disciples came to steal the body. Do, do you remember back at the end of chapter twenty seven Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, "After three days i'll rise again." They didn't believe it, but, but, but they'd heard <laughs> they'd heard it, and so the women had heard it as well, but rather than just have them take his word for it, the angel says, come and see. Come and see for yourself. Now that's one of the distinctive things about Christianity compared to the other world religions. Christianity makes historical claims. Now, they can't be proved, but they can be disproved. Christianity puts its head on the chopping block in a way that no other religion does. If the remains of Jesus' body were found, Christianity would fall over like a house of cards. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You see, it all rests on this historic fact that the tomb is empty. The thing about Christian faith is that it's not faith without reason. A lot of people think that uh, you can have faith or you can reason. But Christianity is about using reason to investigate and then using reason to ask the question whether it's credible to trust the evidence and then putting your faith on the basis of that reason, basing your faith on the reason. The angel says, come and see. Use your eyes and then believe. And Christianity says, come and see. Check the evidence out for yourself. Now, the claims Christianity makes, the historic claims, they're no different from any other historical claim. All historical claims require faith. Any statement about something that's happened in the past requires faith to believe it. I can't think of anything that's happened in history that can be proved definitively. I think you can provide a whole lot of evidence, but it's evidence. And so if you think about what happened in the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus, as much as any history can be proved, the claims of Christianity are historically reliable, certainly far more reliable than anything else of a similar age. If you don't believe me, then let me say along with the angel, come and see, check it out for yourself. I'm happy to help you. Look at, those, uh, look at the evidence. Come and see. That's what the angel says, but that's not all. They don't just witness the empty tomb, they're called to testify, to to go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. Uh, Do you see it there in verse 6? Come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples. He's risen from the dead, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, there you'll see him. Now that's the thing about life-altering news. It's no good just knowing it, you, you have to share it. Uh, Occasionally I have friends who visit Sydney from somewhere else and they ask me for advice. Uh, You know, what should we see? Where should we go? Uh, Now, I've lived in Sydney for quite a while. I know all sorts of walks and parks and sites and restaurants and coffee shops and ways to get around. But it's no good knowing all of that if I don't share it. It doesn't benefit anybody else if I keep it to myself. As I think about those things and whether I'm going to tell my friends, I I could be nervous... I could be uncertain about whether to offer my opinion. Maybe they won't agree with me. Maybe they'll make fun of me or or argue with me about my my, uh, choices. But of course that's not what I do. I can't wait to tell them, to share something good that I know about. That's the reality when we've got good news. We we can't wait to share it. It should be like that, shouldn't it? When it comes to the news that we have, that we've come and seen that Jesus has defeated death. We've experienced it. The question is, will we go and tell? Maybe we're scared of upsetting the friendship we have with our friends or family or workmates. Maybe we're uncertain about that awkward conversation of maybe people uh, judging us or thinking we're better than them. Maybe we're just not convinced that people need Jesus. They seem quite happy and content. Maybe we're scared of messing it up, of saying the wrong thing. All sorts of reasons that are really nothing more than excuses. The author D.T. Niles famously once wrote that evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It's that simple. Is that the way you think about sharing your experience of Jesus, about what you've seen? Or have you made things a whole lot more complicated and difficult? What do the women do? Well, the women, on the other hand, they do just as they're told. Verse 8. The women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. That's a funny combination, don't you think? Afraid, yet filled with joy? What were they afraid of? Well, not the guards. They're either lying comatose on the ground or they've run off back to Jerusalem. It's not the angel. He's comforted them. They've checked out the tomb and now they're on their way. Maybe they're afraid of the reaction of the disciples, that they won't be believed. I wonder if it's simply the fear of the unknown. Their world is now a very different place from the one that they lived in when they went to sleep the night before. Because eternity has broken in. The kingdom of God has shattered the complacency of the kingdom of this world. Everything's changed. They're just not sure how yet. They're not sure what it means for them Fear and joy. It's a little bit like when you land in a foreign city. Do you remember we used to do that? Uh, it's your first time overseas. You don't know what to expect. You, you step out through the airport doors and you're assaulted by this whole new set of experiences and sensations, smells and sounds and sights, new languages, new culture. There's excitement, but there's also fear. You're not sure how you fit into this new world. I wonder if that's not what the women were feeling. Well, whatever their reason, Jesus knows about it. He suddenly appears to comfort them, verse 9. And they fall at his feet and worship him. And then verse 10, Jesus says to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. He's with them physically, at least for the moment, comforting, strengthening for the task to go and tell. But he's going to do better than that. He promises that the rest of the disciples will see him and then he's going to promise to be with them as well, to be with them always in the person of his spirit to the very end of the age, wherever they go. You see, that's a promise not just for the women, It's a promise not just for the disciples, it's a promise for us too. When our excitement at what Jesus has done is mixed with fear, fear of ridicule, fear of rejection, Jesus is promising to be right there with us in the midst of our fear, strengthening and guiding. So be comforted. Don't be afraid, Jesus says to us as well. And go and tell what you've seen. Well, moving on, Luke and John's Gospels they focus on Jesus' meeting with the disciples in Jerusalem. But Matthew, he skips over that, and instead he looks at a different meeting. Uh, The women hurry off to find the disciples, but Matthew's attention is in the soldiers. They hurry off to find the chief priests and he tells the story of their efforts to rewrite history. He's responding to the explanation that the Jews of his day made, an explanation people still bring up today. The disciples stole the body. He didn't really rise. And so Matthew carefully records what actually went on behind the scenes. Even though the chief priests heard from the soldiers what had happened, they still didn't believe it. And so they bribed the soldiers to take the fall, to admit that they fell asleep and that the disciples had come and stolen the body while they were asleep. And they promised that if anyone tries to blame the soldiers, then the priests will fix things up with their superior officers. And Matthew finishes, This false story is being circulated to this day, maybe 40 years later, as he writes it down. Well, for some reason, Matthew jumps over the women who uh, actually pass on the message to the disciples. Uh, He jumps over all of the Jerusalem appearances of Jesus and he fast forwards instead to another meeting, to the Galilee meeting that Jesus had promised in verse 10. And I wonder if it's not because of where the meeting is. Verse 16, it's only Matthew who mentions this. We're told that the disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Matthew's got this thing about mountains. It's very interesting if you follow it through from the start. And I wonder if it's not about his Jewish background, comparing Jesus to Moses who received God's law and saw God up on a mountain. You see, it's only Matthew in chapter 4 who points out that Jesus was on a mountain when Satan tempted him with the kingdoms of this world. Chapter 5, it's on a mountain that Jesus delivers his sermon on the mount. It might be the same one that the disciples are now meeting him on. It's also a mountain that Jesus goes up onto to pray by himself after he's fed the five thousand. He comes down from the mountain to walk on the water. A bit further on, Peter, James, and John see Jesus transfigured up on a mountain. He meets Elijah and Moses, both prophets who meet God on a mountain. And now we've got Jesus inviting his disciples to meet with him on a mountain. And just like the the women had been invited by the angel to come and see, Jesus also invites the disciples, come and see. And so verse 17, that's what they do. They come and they see Jesus. And just like the women, they worship But that's not all. The angel had told the women to come to go and tell, and that's exactly what Jesus does for his disciples too. Look at verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." Uh, Familiar words for those of us who've been around church for a while. But let's break them down for a bit. First up, the context for the command to go and tell. The context is, Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. You see, it's because Jesus endured the cross, because he bore God's wrath, that God vindicated him, justified him, restored him, Elevated him, crowned him, seated him at his right hand. It's the victory scene from Daniel chapter 7. It's why Jesus calls himself the son of man all through his earthly ministry because he's thinking of that crowning, that coronation. Do you remember what he says when he's uh, accused before the Sanhedrin? Chapter 26, verse 64. He says to them, But I say to you, in the future... You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And now God's done that. He's raised him, seated him on his heavenly throne. A few short short weeks later, Peter stands up in front of the Pentecost crowds in Jerusalem and he he, he says exactly that. In Acts chapter 2, verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, has poured out what you're now seeing here. Let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. You see, that's the the crucial bit of, it's the foundation for everything that Jesus commands after that. It's because he's king that he commands his disciples to go as his representatives. All authority's been given to me, therefore, go and make disciples. Well, perhaps you're thinking, David doesn't really look like Jesus has been given all authority. If he really has... The resurrection really doesn't make that much of a difference. Why is the world the way it is? Why is there a pandemic? Why is there suffering? Why is there still death and sin? Things don 't look that much different from the way they were before the resurrection. you've got to remember the type of kingdom though that Jesus is bringing in. it 's a different type of kingdom. His rule has begun, His kingdom is growing. Some people are recognising it at the moment, but it won't be complete until Jesus returns. Jesus has won the victory over sin and death. The victory announcement, though, is still getting out. The victory's been won, the announcement is still getting out. But here's the shock. Jesus grows his kingdom through his followers going and telling That's how his kingdom comes to reign, at a human level anyway, how it becomes more real and powerful in the world. It's because Jesus has authority that we go and tell the news. And it's as we go and tell, as people respond, that the authority of Jesus becomes more real and experienced and observed. As people choose to recognise him as their king, the kingdom grows. Jesus is at work through his spirit, through his church, taking his world from where it was, under the rule of death and corruption, and bringing it all so it's under his rule instead. A theologian called Tom Wright says, those who believe in Jesus, who are witnesses to his resurrection, are given the responsibility to go and make real in the world the authority which he already has. That's our job. It's to make real in the world the authority which Jesus already has. We've come and seen. We are to go and tell. Is that what you're doing? The first step, of course, is to come and see. Have you come and seen? If you haven't recognised and bowed and worshipped Jesus that's the first step and I'd love to help you do that, to investigate the claims and life of Jesus. Most of us have already done that though. So the next question is, are you going and telling? Are you making disciples? That's what we should be on about as a church. Our church motto is growing followers of Jesus. It's what we do, it's who we are. We're growing followers of Jesus. That is our core business. Whatever programs we run, whatever events, should be measured against that. Are we helping to make, Are they helping to make disciples? One final thought. If like the women, you're afraid, take heart and dwell on Jesus' final promise. The final words of Matthew's gospel. What a great way to finish. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew begins his gospel with Jesus' birth, a birth that fulfils the words of Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now it closes with this promise that all Uh, for all of Jesus' disciples, that the risen, powerful, conquering King Jesus will be with us always. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, what a wonderful story. Uh, We think of the women coming on the tomb on that first morning. We think of the disciples as they wait on the mountain as they see Jesus and we join with them and we bow and we worship before him our crowned conquering king and we rejoice uh, in the the victory and the life that he's won for us Uh, give us the desire, give us the eyes give us the heart and the courage not only to come and see but to go and tell for Jesus honour and glory that he might be king over all. Amen.